if I'm really motivated to run that 10K for some reason, let's say I'm raising money for an illness that's really affected my family, or I'm doing this with a group of people I'm just delighted to spend time with. If I have a purpose, I'm much more likely to do the hard work. host and Emily Ken. And before we start with today's show, please remember to visit mindset.zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. Today, our special guest is Dr. G. Known as Dr. G, Deborah Gilboa is a practicing physician, resilient expert, on-camera personality, author, and parent. She's a regular contributor on The Doctors, Today's Show, Good Morning America, and The Rachel Ray Show. And her latest book is From Stress, to Resilient, the guide to handle more and feel it less. So welcome to the Mindset Zone, Dr. G. Thank you so much. I'm really pleased to be here. I was reading your book, From Stress to Resilient, and you have a different take because most people tell us about, oh, stress is toxic, which will avoid at all costs. And uh, you see it in a different way. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Stress, although difficult, frustrating, unpleasant, is not a toxin. It's a tool. And I'm, as you said so kindly in your intro, I'm a medical doctor. It's not that I don't understand the damage that stress can do. I really do. I see it a lot. You know, I was just today in the hospital and in the office. I see the negative effects of stress. But telling people, like I was told in medical school, stress is the new smoking. Tell your patients to avoid it at all costs. Well, I would like to remind everybody, you can totally avoid smoking, but you cannot avoid stress. And I see equally the toxic effect of people thinking that if they're feeling stress, they are somehow doing life wrong. And that's not the case. And I I like the that the distinction that you do that because yes, uh, stress is not a pleasant sensation or feeling oh, for us. Yeah. <laughs> no, let let's put it out there. It's not it's not something that we go oh where I'm going to feel stretched stressed today. That life happens the day to day. There are stressful situations that happen that are the only way to avoid is not living. So it's good that we are living. Right. And it's it's not even just that it's a negative byproduct of living, like exhaust is a negative byproduct of driving my car. It's It's something more fundamental than that. It turns out that our brains view all change as stressful, even the stuff we want, even the good stuff. Even if you get a major opportunity in your business to level up or a relationship opportunity that you really wanted, like, I don't know, a long lost half sibling that comes into your life or an adoption that you've worked really hard for. You know, I mean, really people who adopt for the most part have put in a lot of effort. And yet when they find out they're getting this child into their home, it's stressful. And that's because our brains, while they have a million different functions, have only one job. And that job is simply to keep us alive. Since we are currently alive, 
right? That's the good news. The bad news <laughs> is that our brains are suspicious of all potential change, even the stuff that will be amazing. So it's like homostasis that we are trying to keep at all costs. Right. Exactly. Remember from, you know, biology or chemistry class that you learned about homostasis, the body wants to keep things as is, even when that's not the best thing for us, for example. And so when we say, oh, maybe we need a change or I see a change is coming, even if it's the most incredible thing, our brain says, hang on, hang on. And it has these three reflex reactions. It says, what could I lose? Should I trust this? And what will be uncomfortable about it? Even if it's something you think is the most amazing, wonderful thing. Like you find out from your family, they're giving you your dream vacation for your birthday. Even while you might feel honored and thrilled and so excited and so happy, your brain will st still say, wait, what could I lose? What was I going to do for my birthday that I'm not going to get to do? Or what won't we be able to afford because we're doing this? Or who in my family will be mad because they're not invited? And then distrust. Did they really plan it right? Is it really the place I would have chosen? Is it, do they really know what they're doing? Um, did they spend money we don't have? Do we have a bunch of credit card debt now? And then even if your brain starts to recognize, or maybe they present you with answers, you know, everybody's coming, it's totally paid for, there's no credit card debt, then your brain frustratingly says, well, what's going to be uncomfortable about it? Because, you know, if I if I was planning this trip to the mountains that I've always wanted, I would have acclimated myself. I would have done all this exercise first so I'd be in better shape. Or will the pillow be right? Or can we get a cake I really like for my birthday because maybe there isn't a good bakery there? You know, none of these are life-threatening problems. And our brain insists on checking to see first loss and then distrust and then discomfort. And these three reflexes, they're not because you're not open to new ideas. They're not because you're not adventurous or open-minded or smart enough or strong enough. They're just your brain trying to keep you alive. I, I love this example because initially when you're speaking, I was thinking in even when I had my daughter, that was something that we wanted, something that we are very happy about, but there was stress associated with it <laughs> and uh, loss of sleep. Uh, uh, will I be a good parent uh, uh, and comfortable in many ways, in many things? Anna, I have four kids in their <laughs> teens and 20s. There's still stress associated with it. And they're my favorite people in the universe. Yes. Uh, so I, I like these concrete kind of situations that is part of how we um, we react to change, how we adapt to change, uh, change that we want and change and sometimes the curveball that is thrown at us. So what can we do about it? So, okay, if the bad news is that our amygdala, that's the part of the brain right in the center of our skulls that insists on looking at all change as suspect, the good news is that we, although we cannot turn that safety mechanism off, we can turn it down. And we can actually always turn it down because all we have to do is ask ourselves a question. We don't even have to have the answer to the question. We just have to ask ourselves, what choices do I have? When we ask that question, we engage, for those science nerds out there like me, the prefrontal ventromedial cortex, this thing right behind your forehead at the front of your brain. And it, as I said, it doesn't turn off the amygdala, but it dials it down from a 10 to a five-ish, depends on the person. And as soon as you ask yourself, what choices do I have? 
basically you begin to think and that changes the brain chemistry and it allows you to have those feelings. It won't, it won't magically turn off loss or distrust or discomfort, but it allows you to think past them. And as soon as you start to think, what choices do I have? If you're able to make a list or if you really feel stuck, ask someone else or do a little research, then you can engage with one or more of those choices and that allows you to reunify and be resilient. And that takes me to something that you have in the book that I really appreciate because I agree a lot with it. This is like uh, develop some mental fitness. Is uh, uh, not because I think if somebody out there is listening to us speaking and then uh, he feels stress, he feels the lost trust and uh, all the comfort associated with it and goes, okay, what is the choices do I have? Nothing. Oh my gosh. And you know, build even more stress. Nothing I can do. It's like if you decide to, okay, I'm going to run 10 miles uh, without any training. Right. Exactly. Listen, there is a an idiom in English that I really despise. And it is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But I observe that what doesn't kill us makes us miserable. <laughs> that And if just going through difficult things were enough, then everyone we know would at a certain point in their lives easily navigate all the difficult things. But we all know someone, and I'm asking everyone who's listening to think without telling anyone, of one person in your life who no matter how many bad things they go through, it never gets any easier for them. They always feel oppressed and overwhelmed. So if just going through bad things were enough, I think that's the same as saying that I trained for a marathon by losing my car in the parking lot repeatedly. <laughs> right? Um, I just wandered around until I found my car enough times that I could run 26 miles. That that doesn't work. And so that idea of fitness, look, if I told you that I wanted to be able to run 10 kilometers in October, you might say to me, oh, what will you do to train for that? If I said nothing, I just I'm just going to go. You might reach out to me afterwards to see how it went, because it's unlikely to go well. If I want to be able to run 10 kilometers, I have, unfortunately, to run, to build up to it. And in that way, stress is to resilience and mental fitness as exercise is to strength and body fitness. First of all, stress and exercise have a lot in common. They are both terrible for most of us. <laughs> most of us can't stand either one. But another similarity, and this is where I point out that people are not wrong that stress can be really damaging. Another similarity is if I decided I was gonna train for that 10K and you knew that I had recently recovered from an ankle fracture, you might say, are you ready? You know, is have professionals told you that that's a reasonable thing to do right now? Do you need more recovery time? Because recovery requires just comfort. Recovery requires time and comfort. Resilience requires stress and change. Repeat that, please. Recovery requires comfort and time. But resilience, that mental strength, that requires stress and change. I don't want anybody doing this injured. And I think one of the places that people really struggle is that I can choose whether or not to exercise, but I can't choose all of my stressors, not the timing, not the amount. So people may be listening and thinking, okay, Dr. G, that's really nice. As if I can say, oh, stressor, no, thank you. I'm not interested today. I'm gonna stay on the couch. We don't get to do that the way we do with exercise. This is the place where it's not a perfect analogy. That's why we have to know, and it's something I think you've spoken about a lot on your podcast, we have to know what our own 
signs are that we're struggling and how we heal. And, and sometimes ask for help because right. sometimes so we need the help. Reaching out to our connections. And one of the skills that I that I talk about in my book is that building connections makes us more resilient. We don't have all the answers. Setting boundaries makes us more resilient because every time you say yes to something, you are saying no to something else. And usually, entrepreneurs, that something is your own safety. And I see you are touching here so so great points, in my opinion, that are so important for us to reflect about because it's like uh, I think uh, uh, nobody will demand somebody to run the marathon just to keep up with uh, that uh, metaphor and analogy um, without some preparation and training. But sometimes in the workforce, people are demanding a lot because we are in this constant change kind of environment. And they are demanding a lot of the workforce of people in teams and people uh, in situations without uh, giving them uh, the conditions for the training, for doing that preparation. Uh, even if they are not recovering of anything, if everything is okay, they still need training. They still need to tap and to develop those muscles that allows them to be more resilient. I think you're absolutely right. And I think leaders today, especially in business, but I would imagine in most communities actually, are in a really tough spot. Because of this narrative that stress is always toxic, we've been taught to believe that if we're causing stress in someone's life, we are the villain, like Disney level villain, you know, rubbing our hands together and thinking about how we're going to make people miserable. And that's not reasonable because leaders' jobs are to introduce or navigate change. If you run an organization of any kind that is undergoing no change at all, this is your moment, take your vacation. This is this is when your group is least likely to need you. But as soon as there's change, that's when we need good leadership. So if a leader thinks, boy, if my people are stressed, I'm doing something wrong, they are not going to be able to be successful. That is tying both their hands behind their back. What we need to know as leaders is not how to never cause stress. It is how to be as if we are coaches of elite athletes as we help them navigate that stress, navigate that change. Uh, develop the, 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 the skills necessary for when stress happens, because it's going to happen. And if change happens, stress is next, is there. But to allow us to have everything that we need to give us the best options to use it to our benefit and the benefit of the team or the work that we are doing. Anna, do you know the idiom, uh, building the plane while you're flying it? Yes. This is what leaders have to be able to do. We can't say, well, as soon as things slow down, I'll build my team's resilience. Because as far as I can tell in this decade, in this millennium, things don't slow down. <laughs> <laughs> and Maybe they will, that would be lovely, but waiting for it seems to be a poor business strategy. So we do have to be able to navigate the change that's going on. And instead of also hoping for a little carve out time to build resilience, the trick is to use the change we're experiencing now to build the resilience that we want in the future. So you repeat a lot that this word resilience, that is one term that we see coming up a lot and a lot uh, from uh, uh, articles to people speaking about, and because there are so many sp uh, people speaking about this, 
I would like to ask you, what is your definition within this context of resilience? Thank you for asking. The definition that I use and a lot of social scientists use is the ability to navigate change and come through it mission oriented. So for an individual, I might say my ability to navigate change and come through it true to my intentions or my purpose. But for an organization, and most of the work that I do is with companies, it is about the ability to navigate change and come through it still pointed at your mission, whatever that is. The reason that that matters is because just as if I'm really motivated to run that 10K for some reason, let's say I'm raising money for an illness that's really affected my family, or I'm doing this with a group of people I'm just delighted to spend time with. If I have a purpose, I'm much more likely to do the hard work. So one of the things that's most valuable to companies is to hone their mission to something that everyone in the company has clarity around and can speak out loud. Yeah, and they they find the meaning and they find the purpose that is so important and I think is one of the best antidotes to the great resignation that everybody's complaining about. Because if they don't find that meaning, that purpose to the mission, it's just under stress, it's just easier to say, okay, I'm going to get another job. There is another offer over there. Why not? You know, I was doing some work with, uh, and they've given me permission to tell this story. So I get to tell who it is. I was working with a company called Prolacta and we were doing a great deal of work. And at some point I said, could you please, and I, I was pulling them anonymously. And I said, could you please sum up your mission? Why does your company do what it does? Why would you put in the hard work? And then later I asked them to tell me why they were tied to their mission. But first, what's your company's mission? And their company's mission is to feed hungry babies. Sweet. And And they all knew it, right? I mean, it wasn't that I got lots of different people and that's what I figured out from all their various answers. Everybody wrote. We feed hungry babies. We feed hungry babies. We feed hungry babies. <laughs> and and they are crystal clear about their mission. They have been navigating some very big changes, but it is a mission that it is easy to get behind. Yeah. And so it makes resilience not easy, but easier. It makes it much more tangible. So is that is, it can be a work in individual level, knowing yes. what is our purpose and develop mm -hmm. that resilience to navigate change and come through with that mission clear and that purpose clear, can be in a team finishing a, a certain project in order to achieve certain goals. But again, uh, getting that team, that group of people being resilient to navigate the change and the organization, like a company that you are describing, if they people have clarity about the mission, they can navigate change and come through in a way that is still alignment with their values. Many of the companies that I work with called me early in the pandemic, uh, partially because as it happens, I'm also a medical doctor, right? So I was understandably a lot of people's first call. What is this and how do we navigate it? Should and, and a lot of that came down to a, should we stay open or should we close? Should we keep our offices open or send everyone home? You know, it was really this stick together or separate, whether it was to serve people in a particular place or just how they brought their company together. And I, I said the same thing to everyone. I said, I don't know, but you do. What's your mission? And when they looked at their mission, how to navigate this change, not how to make it simple, how to make it easy, how to get everyone to agree, but the right thing to do became really clear to these leaders. And when they got pushback, they could point to their mission because your customers, your clients, your vendors, your stakeholders, your employees recognize that they have in some way 
co-signed your mission by working with you. Yeah. And so yeah. it might turn out to be a litmus test for some people. They might say, well, if this is what our mission means, it's not the right place for me. I argue that that is difficult, but important both for that individual and for the organization. But I, I have to tell you, I only saw that happen maybe for half a dozen individuals across dozens of organizations. Many people said to me, you know, and I work with youth serving organizations and utilities and healthcare and startups and tech companies and real estate agents. And they all said either, yeah, that's what we have to do. Or, oh, I don't like it, but I see why that's what we have to do. And uh, thinking about the COVID what situation that illustrates building the plane as we are flying it, because was really... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> for everybody, there was not a roadmap for sure. And but it's also like absolutely a stressful situation worldwide that gave the opportunity for us to reinvent and redo things and for some companies to do work to become more change competent. And that is one of the things that you help your clients with them to be. So how can how do you work in organizations for that and the any tip for individuals to how can we become more change competent? I really appreciate you using that term. And the reason that the promise that I make is about helping people increase, become change competent is because it is unrealistic to say we will become change ready or change welcoming because that's not how our brains work. Just the chemicals don't back that up. But we can become more competent, better at navigating change. That does not mean better at loving it. That does not mean rushing towards it with open arms. But we can go from being resistant to competent. And as individuals, so here was the good news for me. I'm a medical doctor and I was seeing all these patients that they could recover from illness, but they weren't getting to where they really wanted to be in terms of wellness, all of them. And the medical literature calls that gap patient resilience. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, what's that? And going back 15 years, when I started to look into it, most of the literature that existed around resilience was around combat veterans and other people with post-traumatic stress disorder and people with pretty severe mental illness, which is all really interesting, but wasn't totally applicable to my patients. So I was able with some really smart people to start doing research into this. And one of the things that we found is that resilience is not a character trait. It's not like, um, you know, your sense of humor or your natural optimism. It turns out that it is eight skills. And to me, this is great news that it's not a character trait because it means you're not stuck with whatever you got. It's not like your eye color and it just is what it is. Skills can be learned. So no matter how terrific you are at some of them or all of them, you can improve. Right? You can become an Olympian of change if you want to, or you can just get out of Little League if you want that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that and really encouraged me both personally and professionally. It's all about that growth mindset that Carol Dweck speaks. It's, a, it's something that is learnable, that we can learn, and there is a lot that we can do about. And your work is all about teaching people these skills. Right, and it means we don't have to despair of our coworkers, our clients, our children, that, <laughs> that how they are now is how they will always be. Now. Don't go about trying to change the adults in your personal life because you can't, right? You, if they want to, that's fantastic. But the people over whom you have some sort of purview, 
to mentor them towards growth. So people that you lead in your business or people that you lead in your home or in your community, you have the opportunity to present them with any one of these eight skills because it's not it, it's not um, a recipe. You don't have to do one and then two and then three and then four. Any you, of these skills can help you. Can you give us an example of one of yeah, these so skills? We, I mentioned two, building connections and setting boundaries. And because I don't want to infuriate anyone, I'll just rattle off the other six, if that is right. Uh, so the next is opening to possibilities. If resilience is about navigating change and you had a picture of how it was supposed to go, you can see how it's easier to navigate change when you can open to the possibility that that wasn't the only way to get to a positive result. The fourth, just in the list in the, the order I have them memorized, not in any particular order, is about managing discomfort. In that cycle that I mentioned of getting from the, the change all the way through to reunification, I talked about lost distrust and discomfort being these three reflexes. And I thought just logically that loss and distrust would be the hardest, but it turns out discomfort is where most people get stuck. That's where they freeze up or run away and don't keep moving forward through whatever this changes. So managing discomfort, really important skill. And then, and these four sort of hang together, setting goals, finding options, taking action and persevering. Those four skills they don't always go in that order. And there's a lot of doubling back and one step forward and two steps back in there. But those four skills are crucial to becoming, to, to staying mission oriented, to moving forward towards the future you want. The whole point of being resilient as an individual is to get the life you want. So th this oh. is, a, and these eight skills you have it in the book, you have like eight sections exactly to help people with specific exercises to cultivate those skills. And even better from my point of view, I don't tell you what order to do it in. I ask you some questions in the introduction so you can figure out what change is top of mind for you and which of these skills would be most valuable to you right now. And then I say, go to that one. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's so important because when in the positive psychology, one of the things that I really love uh, is the work of Sonia Lubrowinski, the How of Happiness, her book that uh, she uses the uh, an image that I think we can relate with the image is the happiness pie. The image that, oh, nice. okay, yeah, 50%, okay, genetical set point for our overall wellness and happiness. So let's blame. Some people are going to have more of that tendency to see the glass half full, others half empty. So we can blame our parents for that, like I like to say. But the other half, because we still have enough left, 50% left, we know that about 10% is the life circumstances, good and bad, the things that happen in our lives, the curveballs that absolutely, like we said in the beginning, when we are living those life circumstances, mainly the hard ones, mm -hmm. is tough. It feels much more than 10%. It's only when we look in that big perspective of research that allow us to narrow down to that, because there is that the 40% that is that the space for our habits, our mindsets, and the skills that you are speaking about. We have a lot of room to play that allow us to grow and really to tap into our potential. It's absolutely true. And it is, it's never too late. This is the other thing I find really encouraging about this. Wherever you're at, you can always use the change that you are navigating, whether you picked it or not, right? Whether it came to you or it's something that's helping you towards a change you really want, doesn't matter. You can use the, the stress that you're navigating to get stronger. Love it. So I will, uh, anybody listening, 
get the book from stressed to resilient is the guide to handle more and feel it less is really a beautiful book and you can do the exercises in the book i love the format it's like that part of the action not just helping you to take the action and where else can people learn more about you and your work the easiest thing to do actually i created a free tool online to give people a sense of what this is about and it's at stressed to resilient.com okay stressed to resilient and i will make sure that put that on the show notes of this episode and if they want to get you as a speaker you are a keynote speaker that you can energize a room very well where can people learn more about that the easiest place to find me is my website which is askdrg.com so easy askdrg.com so thank you so much for your time today thank you for having me and thanks everybody who spent this time with us Thank you for listening and remember to visit mindset.zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. As always, I'm so grateful you are here. Expand what's possible. For you, for the ones around you, for the world.